wait for the Anushka. Anyway, while, I, while we're settling in, I just wanted to congratulate every one of you for making it through the first day. And admittedly, I, I say this at every retreat, but with, with all the sincerity uh, that I can feel, because it really is such a heroic thing to, to stop, to put on the brakes, to downshift, and to keep quiet, and to look within. It is, uh, that's why it's sometimes described as going against the stream, because everything, as I mentioned last night, everything in our conditioning, the momentum of our lives, the, the engine of our lives is, how are you? Busy. How's your week? Good, busy. And as Amy Krauss Rosenthal, Rosenthal says, you name the question, busy's the answer. She says, I know we're all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but most often busy is the knee-jerk response. She said, have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? I've got 10 caves to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? Yeah. So this is the momentum of our mind and to stop and and to have our identity so bound up in, in busy and what, um, what she describes as the luscious byproduct of productivity, the joy of crossing things off, the, our lists, etc. So clearly what we're doing here was we're not, we're not list crossing off, even though you may have done some list making today while you were sitting. Review, reviewing or revisiting the list that you had been living in. And you, it's amazing to stop. What do you experience when you stop? As Padma Sambhava says, if you want to understand your past, look at your present experience. As we experience the fruits of what, of what we've practiced. And I think that for most of us, when we come on retreat, whether we're the people leading the retreat or sitting, we alternate the first day between either dullness, because our vital energy has gotten so diminished in our daily life. We fluctuate between dullness and restlessness, where our reactivity is so strong to being present that, it, that uh, we start feeling very agitated and restless. And so we alternate between the two. So it's not easy to sit with this sometimes extreme fatigue and restlessness. And then we're often visited the first day, especially because if you've been incredibly dull or restless, you start to ask yourself, what's the point? And then we're visited with doubt. And then our mind then starts fantasizing about all the things we could have been doing, should have been doing, and then the mind fills with desire, and then we're having, then we have the wanting mind, and then everything here looks so unpleasant, and then we start feeling aversive, and then we fluctuate in and out of what we call a multiple hindrance attack. And yet, during this day, 
in a fundamental way, as Anushka alluded to this morning, nothing really happens. Nothing, you never, ever left the present moment. That the entire drama that played through your mind and body, as intense as it is, was just an unfolding of, of sights, sounds, smells, tastes, lots of sensations, and thoughts, reactions, and feelings. But because this, the reactions come in such a, a torrent in a way, often it seems as though we are in the middle of a, of a big drama when it's really just those six experiences repeating themselves over and over, you know, just one after another. Last one's gone, next one hasn't happened. It's just the one where we're hanging out together right now. And, and maybe at some point in the span of your day, you saw, no matter how crazy it was, it was really just moments, just unfolding moments. And perhaps we begin to see over the course of a retreat how different it is what's actually happening, what the Dharma is, which is those six experiences, and the, and the other aspect of the Dharma, this amazing capacity of our mind to proliferate about what's happening and to elaborate. The good news is that even the elaborations of our mind, that flywheel of commentary and judgments and likes and dislikes, even that becomes our, that is our path. We, it's just another thing that we notice. And then everything becomes equal in its opportunity to wake us up to the simple reality of this unfolding present. So at first we have very little capacity to be able to notice, to, be, to wake up in every world, to bring in the title of the retreat. We have very little capacity to actually see what our mind and our body is doing in a continuous way. And it requires some degree of settling, some degree of, of gently bringing our attention, which is often scattered, together with our body, to have our mind, you could say, mind being, the, being conscious in the same location as our body. And this is what the, what the Buddha suggested was the, was the key to this, um, to the p- capacity that we have to wake up out of uh, just being lost in the dramas of our mind, to be able to notice, to be able to be clear, to have clear perception about what's happening. Because most of our distress comes from the lack of clear perception of what's happening. Just a little funny story that I enjoyed about this waking up out of the distorted perceptions of ourselves. I read this in a book from 
from Anthony DeMello, where he describes how we are literally sleepwalking, just so much lost in our, our internal world. He said, last year on Spanish television, I heard the story of a gentleman who knocked on his son's door and said to him, Jaime, wake up. And Jaime answered, I don't want to get up, Papa. And the father shouted, get up, you have to go to school. And Jaime said, I don't want to go to school. Why not, asked the father. Three reasons, says Jaime. First, because it's so dull. Second, the kids tease me. And third, I hate school. And the father said, well, I'm going to give you three reasons why you must go to school. First, because it, it, it is your duty. Second, because you're 45 years old. <laughs> and third, because you are the headmaster. <laughs> wake up, wake up. So it may not seem like putting our attention in the same location as our body is waking up. It seems so simple. It doesn't seem particularly exotic. It doesn't seem like you will see, hear Beethoven's symphony or lights flashing on and off. And it, it actually hurts. But this is actually the the paradox of our practice. As Eugene said, whatever you run from, you run toward. And what, to whatever degree we become disembodied, leave our body, let our mind leave our body, we end up stuck in our body. We end up stuck in a, in a body that is not at ease, that is not relaxed, the, a body that we're not at home in. And to the degree that I am not at home in my body, you're not at home in your body, your mind will will innocently, out of love for you, will start going out in search of some kind of relief. And the method for relief that most of us use to come home to ourselves is to leave ourselves. And unfortunately, that has not, this going in order to find relief has not made anyone happy. There's a story, I'll just briefly paraphrase from the suttas, from the teachings of the Buddha about a a celestial being or a deva named Rohitasa who came to the Buddha and asked the Buddha, is it, if it's possible, is it possible to reach the end of the world, to go beyond, to become free, to go beyond the cycles of suffering? Is it possible to come to the end of the world by going? And he described 
in himself in another lifetime. Again, this is, you could either take it literally or metaphor as metaphor. He described himself as in another lifetime having these great powers of being able to walk long distances very quickly. He could, and he became determined to walk to the end of the world, to go to the end of the cosmos, to where, where he could be completely free. And he did nothing but that except for, for go to the bathroom. Did he eat? He ate. What else did he do? Eat? Eat, drank, defecated, rested a little bit, but pretty much walked for a hundred years to try to reach the end of the world, and he died. And he didn't reach the end of the world. So, so the modern day, or at least at the time of the Buddha, Rohitasa says, can, can you reach the end of the world by going? And the Buddha says, no, you can't reach the end of the world by going. Can't reach the end of this cycle of suffering by going. But only those who reach the end of the world become free. Become free of the torments of the mind and the body. So what do you do with that? You cannot reach the end of the world by going, but only those who reach the end of the world become free. But he, fortunately, he didn't stop there. He said, as I'll just quote a part of what Anushka shared this morning, it is within this fathom long body, with its perceptions and its inner sense or its senses and mind, it's within this fathom long body that lies where we find the world. And it's within this fathom long body where we find the cause of the world. It is also within this fathom long body that we find the end of the world. And within this fathom long body, we find the path that leads to the end of the world. So you can hear from this that the that there really is no path to the end of the world. The path surrounds you in every instant as the very mind and body through which you are perceiving and experiencing. And if you think of a path, it's much more, the path is simply to clear away what obscures or what makes us think that we can reach the end of our suffering by going. So in this short passage, in this fathom long body lies the world, lies the cause of the world, lies the path, lies the the end of the world, lies the path leading to the end of the world. We hear a, a very mini rendition of the the central teaching that the Buddha uh, realized and then later taught, the first teaching that he offered to his um, friends that he had been practicing with and, uh, and one that you could say is included in every other teaching. 
that all teachings contain this, this particular teaching on the Four Noble Truths. But he realized the things he later taught through the body, through mindfulness directed to the body. And in one sutra he said, there's one thing, O monks, or nunks, if developed and cultivated, leads to a strong sense of urgency, to great benefit, to great security from bondage, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to the attainment of vision and knowledge, to a pleasant dwelling in this very life, to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and liberation. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. If one thing, O nunks, is developed and cultivated, the body is calmed, the mind is calm, discursive thoughts are quieted, and all the wholesome states that partake of supreme knowledge reach the fullness of development. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. He goes on to say, ignorance is abandoned, knowledge arises, delusion of self is seen through or given up, and the underlying tendencies of mind are are weakened and eliminated. What is that one thing? It's mindfulness directed to the body. So all of the teachings can be discovered in this, within this fathom-long body. So how far do we have to travel? Where is that path? As I shared last night, the, the way goes nowhere. So if you keep pointing your cart north, as Ryokan says, when you want to go south, how will you ever arrive? So it may, be, it may be challenging, but our practice is to, is to settle back into the moment, to learn in a continuous way rather than to go, to stay where we are. And maybe realize in the long run that we truly never go anywhere. We've never gone anywhere. Even when I'm driving along Sir Francis Drake at 65, I never drive that fast on that road. Whatever the speed limit is. I'm sitting behind the wheel. I'm right exactly where I am. Even being hurled across the the United States in a, in a jet. The jet is moving, but I'm sitting right where I am in my comfortable chair, maybe holding on tight when the bu- hit the bumps, but I'm right where I am. So in the most, in the deepest sense, we are always here, but our mind has a way of going, of constructing a path, constructing a version of reality 
where I am coming from the past, passing through the present, on my way to the future. And the future often is a very grand vision of either pleasure or, or things that are frightening, worrisome, exciting. But in any case, that picture of the one who is going, that picture of coming from the past, passing through here on my way, is, the, is a version of myself that doesn't actually exist. It exists as a kind of story or a narrative. And this is what human beings do. They have this wonderful capacity to create myself in time. It's an amazing capacity. And if, we're not, if we weren't able to do it, if we weren't able to construct that idea of where we're going or where we've been, we might not have the same feeling of orientation, the same feeling of knowing where we are in time and space. I will say, however, that there, there are cultures in this world that construct the sense of our, myself in time exactly the opposite. There's a, some tribe that I studied that sees the future in front and the past as behind. Wait. No, the other way around. The past in the front, because you can see it, the future behind. And their whole language system. So we may not realize until we practice how much we live in this world of, of going, either direction, past or future. And in fact, when we spend a lot of time in the imagined past, because it's only our imagination, we tend to, um, it tends to lead toward certain states of mind. It's one the poet Hafez says, what do people who are often sad have in common? It seems they've all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. He says, what's the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. <laughs> now, all of us construct the past and go there and visit. But the capacity that we have as meditators is to wake up and notice, oh, I'm thinking about the past, or I'm constructing the future. But the process of orienting ourselves to reality, to the simple reality of these unfolding experiences of sights and sounds and smells and tastes, is not easy. Because what we find if we stay here, both in using what we call internal and external mindfulness, we find an experience of being human that is not so easy to bear. It is what the Buddha realized when he was sitting 
doing his practice, even before he did his practice, with his senses, he surveyed the world as he, just like the rest of us do, and he was shocked to see that that the beings that are born here, the definition of being born is that it's the leading cause of aging, sickness, dying, the leading cause of sometimes not getting what you want, the leading cause of sometimes not wanting what you get, the leading cause of loss, of separation, the leading cause of basically all of your, what he called the three prides, being, um, being uh, challenged constantly. The pride in youth, the pride in health, and the pride in life. So this is what we find externally. This is what we find if we're born. Is that life has all these things that are, that are uh, hard to be with sometimes described as dukkha or unsatisfactory, unreliable. Uh, Sometimes dukkha, this challenge of being alive is, this word dukkha is is described as a wheel out of round. Something's not quite right. Hard to find any kind of lasting rest. So this is what we have to open to. And when the Buddha shared this teaching, which he discovered through his senses, he said this is the diagnosis for our human condition. We have three basic kinds of things that are hard to deal with. The the garden variety, dukkha, or things that are hard to bear that I just described. Sickness, old age, death frustrated desire, all the kinds of wounded prides. And then the, the kind of challenge to just deal with the uh, ever-changing circumstances. Nothing stays for very long, and we'll elaborate a lot about that on this retreat. And then just the fact that, that if you are born, you have to continually experience these sights and sounds and smells and tastes and sensations and thoughts and it comes unbidden, it comes relentlessly. And it's, it's sometimes we just want it to stop. Sometimes we feel so sensitive that everything impinges and we wish it would stop. Other times it's just the relentlessness of it. All that we have to do in order to function in our lives, the, the daily, I call it the, you know, the Jackson Brown, uh, what is it, get up and do it again, the, the wake up, eat, defecate, urinate, <laughs> whatever, make your lunch, uh, go to work, do whatever you have to do. And we do it again and again and again. And it's not easy. So the Buddha's prescription for facing this, what he called Sankara Dukkha, the Dukkha of the constant impingement of conditions and just 
all of the garden variety challenges that we have. His prescription was open to it. Open to it. As Jennifer Wellwood puts it in her poem called The Dakini Speaks, she says, My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings. But please, let's not act so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal and shows us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. Or at least we should have a sense of humor about death and dying. Beautifully shared by Pablo Neruda. What we know comes to so little. What we presume is so much. What we learn so laborious. We can only ask questions and die. (laughs) Better save all our pride for the city of the dead and the day of the carrion. There, when the wind shifts through the hollows of your skull, it will show you all manner of enigmatical things, whispering truths in the void where your ears used to be. I always like that one. So within this fathom-long body, we discover this world. This is the world. The only way we know the world is through this body. And we see in the, both in the external mindfulness these general macro conditions, but we experience the internal conditions of aches and pains and restlessness, agitation, heaviness. Of course, we also have the pleasant experiences, smooth vibration, pulsing, gentle, the gentle breeze of the breath. But it, it's all in a state of, of flux and change and not easy to be with. So this is an inevitable part of life. And if we were able to accommodate this domain of experience, if we could open to dukkha, open to things that are hard to bear, we would prevent the, we would prevent to, at least to an extent, the tendency of our mind to 
go out in search, to then have to go in order to find relief. Because when we face, when we experience ourselves intimately and directly, even during these, this first day, every experience that you had today, every sense, simple sense experience, from the taste of food, to the sounds that entered your ear, to the smells, to the sensations, to the mental states, everything came accompanied with some kind of feeling of pleasant, some were pleasant, some came with a valence or the feeling of unpleasant, and some came with accompanied with what we call a neutral or neither pleasant or unpleasant feeling. Every experience comes accompanied with one of those little feelings. And if we are able to simply notice and accommodate pleasant and just let ourselves feel the pleasantness of things, it's amazing how many, how many moments of pleasant we miss in our reactions to them unconsciously reacting to pleasant by, by just spinning out in, in fantasy or desire. But if we could learn to accommodate the pleasant, the pleasant would give way to a, an understanding that pleasant comes and pleasant goes we would experience not just the pleasant that presents itself, but we would experience and can experience the joy that comes from experiencing the pleasant come and go. I think there there are poets who have understood this, this experience where I think it was William Blake where he said, he or she who binds to herself a joy does the winged life destroy? But she who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise. There's an opening that comes if we can allow the pleasant to emerge. And if we could accommodate the unpleasant, learn slowly, slowly, which we're doing, to accommodate the unpleasant feelings that inevitably present themselves, that accommodation of the unpleasant would allow us to see that the unpleasant also comes and goes. And the unpleasant, as we feel how hard it may be to bear in certain moments, would give way, can give way, to a a tenderness, to mercy, to compassion, toward the challenge of being with the unpleasant experiences. And if we could accommodate the neutral experiences that come, the ones that are neither pleasant or unpleasant, and this is hard for us because we're, are, we are so addicted to things being exciting, stimulating. The neutral, we usually just get bored, just kind of space out. But if we could accommodate the neutral, that neutral experience, that feeling of neutral would spread out into a feeling and can and will spread out into a feeling of balance, of peace, of non-reactiveness, 
of centeredness, a sense of ease. Now that's the, the possibility, the promise. However, because we have not learned how to both be present and then accommodate these simple feeling tones that accompany our experience, our mind very quickly, it's conditioned to react to the pleasant with liking, the unpleasant with not liking, and the neutral with ignoring. And thus begins the, the cycle that every one of us are trained in to, uh, to then enter the world of um, following liking with wanting, wanting some kind of experience. So I, I wonder today, let's just back up a little bit, I wonder today if there was anyone, and I say this mostly for the people who are new to retreats, Anybody on the retreat that you saw them or you noticed the way they walked and you saw a person on the retreat and a pleasant feeling arose in you when you saw that person. And for any of you who may have had that experience, did any of you quickly follow that with, I like you? And did any of you quickly follow that with, I want you, I need you, I want to date you, I want to marry you, I want to travel with you, I want to have children with you. I mean, you may have, everybody has their own version depending on your age or life circumstances, but very quickly our mind enters into a, into a, a profound drama all in response to a pleasant moment's experience. And we call it the VR, the Vipassana romance. The, same, the reverse is true where something, and I know this happened today, something triggered an unpleasant feeling. Your body or somebody came in the room late, coughed too much, whatever it was, produced an unpleasant feeling. And that person became the, the reason for all of your misery. And so a whole drama ensues where the, the person who's, that's called the Vipassana Vendetta, where, that, <laughs> where if only they would do something different and, it, and it, within that drama, within that little drama, we've created a world. We create the world of me it's all about me and mine and how they're wrecking my retreat. And, it, and so everything gets revolved around me. And to the degree that we can be aware of that, be aware of, of the unpleasant, and even if we don't quite catch the moment of unpleasant, begin to see the way that our mind starts making the world Within this fathom-long body lies the world, lies the cause of the world. We start creating that imaginary world of past, present, future. Remember, in real time, there's just, we're just here. It's so simple. 
But when we're in that little drama, the present moment becomes the source of dissatisfaction, a source of lack. And the belief is, I have to get away from what's unpleasant, I have to gain what's pleasant. And that is the drama of going, trying to come to the end of, re- of suffering, the end of distress, the end of lack, by going. So the Buddha said that what causes our basic unsatisfactoriness, things that are hard to bear, bear what turns that into mental suffering is that these chronic tendencies of mind to want things to be other than the way they are. That expresses itself as that craving, thirst, hunger for something that's not present. Someone that's not present. Some condition that's not present. And... This is just so built into our our worldly habit of constantly having to keep moving faster to to find relief. As Dalai Lama, as the Dalai Lama, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, answered, "Man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money, and then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health." Then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. So that whole cycle in our mind and then all the needs that arise to heal ourselves is a lot because these simple reactions, the cause of suffering is creating this world of craving, of thirst, of hunger. This chronic tendency to want things to be different than the way they are. Story about this, once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work very difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, How even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise with his children. Yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted. When he was finished, he asked the Buddha how he could help him with his troubles. And the Buddha said, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. What do you mean, railed the farmer? You're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied, sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough, others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly. Then what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, my teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. What's that? asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. So this constant reaction 
to the pleasant and the unpleasant and the neutral. Constant desire for things to be different than the way they are. The Buddha had a, that was his diagnosis and his prescription for dealing with it was to, uh, as described in the teachings, to abandon the cause, to let go. To, to open to, to recognize when it is, and this is the beauty of, of using these, this strong tendency of mind to want things to be different than the way they are, to use that itself as our path. Every time we notice that we're in a state of aversion or grasping, a state of, of what the Buddha called bhava, of becoming, I, I, wa- I want to become, I want to get somewhere, I want to become someone. I, whenever we notice that, instead of making that story of going real, of becoming, we notice the state itself the state of hunger, the state of thirst, the state of dissatisfaction. And the very state that when unrecognized leads us in this, on this wheel of, of being born again and again into these dramas. The very state of, our, of, of hunger that develops this whole world is the very state when we put our mind back in our body and feel both the pleasant, the unpleasant, feel the state of thirst itself. That that experience brings us back to this vital point of presentness. And we can experience without having to wander, as one teacher put it, wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle, this samsara is endless wandering, we can experience a, a cessation, a falling away of that need to become someone in time, the need to get somewhere, the need to get away from someplace, and find our, our home. As Eugene said last night, right where you're sitting. The way goes nowhere. So the beauty, one of the beautiful things about the teaching, the Buddha just didn't just diagnose the fact of our stress and all that's hard to bear and what turns that stress into mental suffering he also offered the, the prescription of letting go, of letting be, and offered a reminder that it's possible to experience a, an ending of that stress, a cessation of suffering, a stepping off of that wheel of endlessly becoming.
a little sneak preview at at maybe a little early in the retreat to describe a a, a kind of awakening, but there was a, a nun named Tajitsu who, instead of following all of her mind stories and desires for things to be different, instead she just paid attention to the presently arising experience, moment by moment. And she had done this to such an extent for such a length of time that her mind became very clear and precise, just noticing each experience appearing and disappearing. And as this story goes, she was standing on a small porch at her monastery, Hakujan, and she saw the shadow of a little wren cross the footpath, followed by the shadow of a hungry cow. And she saw that the little wren arose, abided, and fell away. And then she saw that arising arose, abided, and fell away. And then she saw that arising arose, abided, and fell away. And that abiding arose, abided, and fell away. And that falling away arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this. No ground, nothing to lean on, stronger than the cane cane that she held. Nothing to lean upon at all. And no one leaning. And she opened her tight fist. She opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. So believe it or not, every moment that we meet our experience without trying to alter it in some way, when we see, when we are just a Buddha, awake, knowing the Dharma, whatever it is that's happening, with a non-interfering, non-judgmental attention, just knowing the simple reality. That simple moment, it may not seem like much, but that moment is a, a moment of freedom, a moment of non-grasping, a moment of letting go, a moment of letting be, a moment of life as is, a moment of jumping into the midst of everything. of not separating ourselves out, not being lost in that state of waiting and hoping and becoming. So fortunately, the, the Buddha did not stop with, within this fathom long body lies the world, lies the cause of the world, lies the end of the world that we've manufactured in our mind. But he also 
said this within this fathom long body with its senses and perceptions lies the path leading to the end of the world. And that path, otherwise known as the noble eightfold path, is the one that we are essentially creating out of the stuff of our experience, out of our moment-to-moment experience. We are using our our difficulties, our bodies, our minds, as our path. The path of what he called purification of our actions. We, we try to act in a way that's non-harming. That's what we've established here. So purification of our actions. Purification of our mind. We're simply putting our mind together. We're arousing effort to uh, cultivate the wholesome qualities of, of mindfulness and concentration and energy and calm and interest and investigation. And we are trying to maintain, have enough continuity that we can maintain those, those qualities. So purification of mind and that the effect of developing that kind of steadiness of mind and continuity of presence helps to quiet, to pacify the tendency of our mind to want to be, play, want to be somewhere else. Actually weakens that tendency to, um, to need things to be other than the way they are. And so the, the path has both purification of our action, the purification of our mind, and the practice and the path makes possible the purification of our view, where we can, for ourselves, not just reading it in a book or hearing a Dharma talk, but for ourselves, moment to moment, seeing that, yes, the first of the of the elements of the Eightfold Path, wise understanding, seeing, yes, life has within it, things are hard to bear. Opening to it. What turns it into suffering is this constant reactivity, wanting it to be different. That there's a capacity and a possibility of ease of being and freedom in the midst of it all. And that there's a path. And the way is right here. So within this fathom long body lies the world, lies the cause of the world, lies the end of the world, lies the path leading to the end of the world. May all of us realize the end of the world and be as we are. So let's just sit quietly.
letting the sensations call us here. Pleasant, opening to it. Unpleasant, opening to it. Neutral, opening to it. Just this moment. Just what's here. This is the end of suffering. Thank you for your attention, and again, uh, congratulations for making it through the first day. Though we do have a walking period now, more opportunity to let your mind settle into your body, and then we'll have a sitting and some chanting. And uh, thanks for your attention. Appreciate it. It's hard to sit through a talk the first night, so I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.